everyone, and welcome to the 50th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. I can't believe it, the big 5-0. My name is Jennifer Andrew Grossman. My friends and those are who are regulars know me as JAG. I am the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in open, creative, and accessible, fun ways. Today, we are joined by someone I have been wanting to get on the show for a very long time, Patrick Friedman, joining us, by the way, one day after he just had an operation. So special kudos to him, quite the trooper. Um, we are going to be live streaming on, you name it, Zoom, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And if you are joining us on all of those, any of those platforms, please just type your question right into, into the comment stream and we're gonna get to as many of them as we can. So Patry, uh, as um, you may already know, is uh, the founder and general partner of Pronomus Capital, whose investors and advisors include, uh, among others, Mark Andreessen and Peter Thiel, who is our honoree at our fall gala here in Malibu. Pronomos is a Silicon Valley venture capital firm uh, that invests in charter cities, uh, essentially assets where land is packaged with regulatory changes to promote vibrant and sustainable communities. Uh, Patrick worked at Google as an engineer from 2004 to 2008, and then again, 2013 to 2019. Uh, and then back in 2008, he founded the Seasteading Institute, uh, dedicated to creating sovereign ocean colonies, again, with seed money from uh, Peter Thiel. And he wrote about that experience um, in this book, Seasteading, which he co-authored with Joe Quirk. We're going to, to get to that. Also, we're going to talk about uh, Ephemerile, which is kind of a floating burning man, which he founded in 2000 and nine. So uh, lots to talk about. Patrick, welcome again. Thank you for joining us. It's so great to be here. So uh, Patrick, for many years, you have been interested in one way or another in building communities and uh, encouraging a dynamic where governments are competing for citizens. That led you to founding Pronomus Capital. Tell us a little bit about uh, that venture in particular. Sure. So I've been interested for about 20 years now in the question of kind of why are there not like well-run countries that fit with my values? Um, it's a, it's kind of a, a big question. And, um, you know, the, the answer that I came up with through a lot of research was basically to look at government like an industry and to notice that it's an industry with no startups. I mean, normally if you're a frustrated consumer who wants some product that doesn't exist, there's like some route via which you can try to make it. But all land is claimed and you know we, we know how, how governments work. It's not very easy to reform them. Uh, and so there kind of wasn't a way in, to just start new countries that fit my values. And so I started trying to figure out how to do it. And back then 20 years ago, these ideas were kind of not accepted by mainstream governments or development officials. And so we looked to the ocean with seasteading as well, it's the new frontier. And that's kind of historically where startup societies have happened. So we, we did that for a while. Um, and then starting in 2010, uh, the country of Honduras changed their constitution to create a 
first of its kind program in the world for um, creating kind of communities that uh, brought in their own commercial law under the Honduran constitution and criminal law and could have their own uh, like private arbitration courts and police. And you know that started or kind of showed that there was this, this wave of interest where uh, maybe we don't have to go to the ocean. You know, we're still working on seasteading as one path in the portfolio to change. It's, you know, it's critical to change the world towards more freedom and liberty. And I want there to be a lot of different things that people are working on. But, you know, my focus has shifted to working with governments to create these charter cities. It's charter city is a bit like a special economic zone, except SEZs tend to just be like some tax breaks, tariff breaks, like very shallow changes. And in a charter city, a government says, hey, we want to carve out a larger slice of, you know, kind of the regulations where um, Dubai is the classic example of this. When they are creating their financial center, they're like, our Sharia based law is really not very good for regulating financial transactions. What if we viewed our legal system as like a key part of our product offering in building this city? OK, let's look around the world. Who has the best legal system for finance? All right, we think London is kind of the leader right now. Let's just copy their laws. Let's just hire retired judges. Let's draw a line in the sand and say, within this line, we're gonna use the, uh, the commercial law of, of England. And they did that. And so that's kind of what a charter city is, is trying to expand that to more places around the world of you know, creating these real estate projects packaged with deep regulatory reforms. And then do you see once that, that line in the sand or that special economic zone um, or charter city is established, uh, a dynamic where surrounding areas start to want to get some of what's going on in there and, and that it has a, a broader impact of, of reform by, by example? That's right. And I think that's another one of the factors that's led to increased global interest in charter cities is seeing what happened with China. And it's really easy to get caught up with Hong Kong and China in the fact that Hong Kong did not reform China's kind of, you know, from a social freedom or like towards a democracy, which people are understandably disappointed in. But if you look purely on an economic basis, China saw Hong Kong they used a thousand plus SEZs to liberalize their economy. They lifted more people out of poverty than any country has done in the history of the world, um, you know, all by being inspired by this nearby charter city. So I think that there's an incredible potential for these projects to uplift the countries and regions around them. So uh, how do you choose your assets and what are some of the, the current projects that Pronomos is funding right now? Sure. So, you know, we're, we're kind of looking for projects that meet, uh, you know, a combination of kind of we're investors and we want the projects to make money um, as well as, you know, they have to be kind of, I don't know, ideologically aligned to the idea of using better laws and institutions to improve the lives of the citizens in the countries they're at. And of course, there's a lot of room for debate about exactly what those best rules and institutions are. And we kind of you know, I've got my own views if, if we were sitting around having a beer at a bar, but, you know, kind of anything that, that we can be convinced will make people's lives better, you know, we're happy to see tried. That's the whole idea of this. So um, we, we make investments, you know, based on, on the team and the quality of the project, whether it looks like they're actually going to be able to build a city. And we try to be geographically diverse. Um, right now, our investments are in uh, Honduras, Bhutan, Nigeria uh, and Ghana, and we're we're 
currently uh, in the final stages of evaluating investment in Puerto Rico. Very, very interesting. You know, you, you talk about uh, looking for um, properties and assets where, you know, you, you, you guys are going to want to invest in um, projects that are ideologically uh, aligned, but I also could see a value, um, not for Pronomos, but if somebody else wants to go off and they can negotiate with North Korea or someplace else to start their own communist colony or uh, seasteading community where they're going to, um, because, you know, around the world, well, that wasn't real communism and that re wasn't real communism. I'm like, okay, go ahead and start the real communism and let's see how it goes. And if it works, you're free to go off and float away and join your own um, communist uh communities or, you know, perhaps learn, learn from that, um, that experience. Speaking of learning from experience, uh, this past year, the pandemic, the, the lockdowns, the, the human devastation, did that, uh, how, how has that changed your project? Has it changed the way people view their government and encourage any kind of openness to, to trying new models? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd say the pandemic was kind of a a big challenge for my team personally, it really slowed us down. But in terms of what it's done to the competitive governance movement, it's incredible because, you know, we've had this thesis for decades, this championing this idea that like, hey, it seems like the United States, for example, or other Western countries, like seems like they're doing okay, but really we think they're coasting on past successes. You know, they're very strong on technology. They're not very well governed. Like really we think that there's this, you know, that there's a ton of rot beneath the surface. and you know, I think that's something that, uh, you know, Ayn Rand was incredibly good at showing and, and illuminating and has proved to be very, very prescient. And the coronavirus kind of revealed that, right? Like whatever your politics, whether you think that like lockdowns uh, and mask requirements should be constitutional and are okay because it's a genuine emergency or you think there's a violation of liberty, whatever happened, it, it worked really poorly. Governments did a terrible job, right? We had a vaccine designed in, uh, you know, a year ago, February. And you know, this, the, it was revealed that like different countries succeeded very differently. Some countries worked much better than others and most of the large Western countries did terribly. And so it kind of revealed the rot in the system that so many of us have, have suspected that, you know, these countries are just coasting and they're actually, they cannot competently execute in a crisis. And, and this matters, right? I mean, it's not, you know, we're not just talking about abstract philosophy. We're talking about people's lives, people's livelihoods, whether their businesses are closing, whether their friends and family die, like it's a big deal. And so the, just the number of people um, who are kind of like, wow, yeah, governance quality can really vary and it really matters. Like we have to do something about this. We have to find ways of upgrading our laws and institutions and getting countries that are run competently. So it's, it's been, you know, kind of, yeah, a, a tragedy that's been a huge boost for the movement. All right, now we're starting to get some questions in. I wanna encourage all of you who are watching on YouTube, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Zoom to, to ask your questions, ask about seasteading, ask about objectivism, ask about what it's like to, to grow up <laughs> under the shadow of uh, having uh, Milton and Rose Friedman as your uh, as your grandparents, um, uh, we, we've got a really unique opportunity. You mentioned Ayn, Ayn Rand and um, 
you and I have spoken briefly about it. Uh, we talked about, you have a shirt that uh, says, I am John Galt, it's not who is John Galt. Of course, uh, you are a little bundled up right now because you, uh, you had an operation yesterday on, uh, on your shoulder. So we're not able to, uh, not able to support that quite yet. But um, I understand that you came to Rand a little late in, in life. Um, tell, tell us about your Ayn Rand origin story, if, if you would, and why that t-shirt deserves a prized place in your, in your shrine. Sure, yeah, and I, I, I was bummed that I'm not able to wear it today because I can't actually put anything on. I just had shoulder surgery. Um, but, you know, there's not very many occasions when I feel comfortable wearing it because it's sort of a ridiculous thing to say and, you know, in a fun way. And of course, I don't mean to... Uh, to say that uh, this that that I am kind of anywhere near as uh, as profound and 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 perfect as this fictional hero, but you know I I feel like I'm kind of the main person who's taken on this this monumental task of how can we realistically make new societies, um, you know, and kind of the part of Galt's Galt where it was uh, autarkic, where it didn't have ties to the rest of the economy and it was just kind of secret and hidden. I think that's not realistic, but the general idea that a powerful and important thing to do in the presence of a corrupt system is to figure out how to gather a group of like-minded people and leave it and make something better. Like that just speaks to me. I think that's an incredibly important part of our portfolio. And it's something that very few people are willing to work on because it's so hard. Like how do you start a new country? Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't read Rand until 2008. Uh, I gave a talk at Students for Liberty um, at Temple University and they gave me a, a copy of Atlas Shrugged kind of signed by all the students. And you know, my, my family kind of comes from a different, uh, a different wing of the broad libertarian tent. And I, I tried, I think the fountainhead and didn't really click for me, but reading Atlas Shrugged in 2008 when you know the financial crisis was going down, I was like, "Oh my God!" You know, I would have if I had read this before, I'd have been like, "Well, I kind of agree that that this is a good a good society and a good vision of virtue and a good philosophy." But like, are things really that bad? Are they like really? I, there's a lot of ruin in a nation. But reading it in 2008, it was like, "Oh my God!" Like we're halfway through this path that she painted decades ago. And like, these things are happening. the government is like seizing control of like much larger parts of the economy. They're like printing money like crazy. Like it's hard to see how it can go on without hyperinflation. And so it was just like, you know, it, it was a time when I read it and I was like, there's something here, there's something to this. And, you know, the, like I said, there's, there's parts of her vision for a solution that I agree with forming a better society um, but, you know, in the modern world, our wealth comes from specialization and trade. And I think trying to be self-sufficient is, you know, is not a good idea. Well, you know, you mentioned the t-shirt of uh, I am John Galt and um, uh, our honoree for the Atlas Society Gala two years ago, Chip Wilson, is the founder of Lululemon, uh, famously put on one of his Lululemon bags, um, the Who is John Galt, of course was totally unprepared for the backlash, but really stuck uh, firm to his commitment to, the, to propagating the ideas of Ayn Rand. And he likes to say, we all have a John Gall inside of us. Um, and, you know, I know some objectivists might take, take issue with that, but uh, th these ideas do have the power to ins inspire people. 
to, to find the, those aspects of their inner John Galt or their inner Dagny Taggart or their inner uh, Hank Reardon. And so, so I think that is, um, that's a really, really positive thing. Yeah. Um, so you, you talked a little bit about these, uh, these different wings of libertarianism and it, and it is true. I, you know, obviously Milton Friedman, uh, the, one of the greatest, if not the greatest uh, economics economists of our, our time. Um, and he did know Ayn Rand and, and they, they did have an opportunity to uh, have an opinion on each other's, um, each other's work. And I, I think uh, Friedman was a, a bit critical, I think to some degree unfairly of her saying that, uh, that there was a bit irrational and, uh, and that he didn't take her seriously as a uh, as a as a talent um, and and Rand also really believed that uh, we needed to make an argument for liberty that was um, not based on a utilitarian um, justification that you know yes actually uh, laissez-faire economics will result in rising levels of uh, prosperity and higher standards of living, but that it, at the end of the day, even if it didn't, it came down to the individual's uh, right to their own life and their uh, their own pursuit of happiness. So, um, so did your reading out a shrug uh, lead you to explore objectivism a little bit further? And I think there you, you said there are some things you agree, agree with, and some things that you're like, mm, and you, you diverge. Yeah, I mean, I, I've certainly uh, read a, a fair bit of objectivism and, you know, I think that there's a lot of really, really powerful and important things to the philosophy and, you know, look, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big tent kind of guy. I think there's room for a lot of different ideas in the liberty movement. There's a sense in which we're, we're kind of all on the same side. And I, I definitely think, you know, it, if you think about any kind of like startup or audacious project, it needs to combine some big vision some like clear idea of something much purer and much better than what we have today. And then to get there, you have to be very pragmatic. Um, you know, Google wanted to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Um, and, you know, to do that, they had to go and invent a bunch of algorithms and figure out how to get ads to pay for it and do all of these practical things. And in the same sense, I think that making utilitarian arguments is really powerful. It, it is a way to uh, talk to people who have different values and different philosophies than you do and kind of show them that, uh, that there are better ways to achieve their own goals. That's really important and powerful. You know, and at the same time, if you're, if you're only pragmatic, you know, you're just gonna get caught up in the issues du jour and you're gonna kind of work within existing power structures and not reform them and having like a clear, compelling, consistent, vision of a better way to live and and you know not just a better way to live but like what is it to be a human what is it that's great about humans i mean you mentioned that you know what's the the inner john gold or, or you know or dagny taggart and all of us and i think that that's you know another one of the great things about rand culturally is just the willingness to kind of see the greatness in humans and not just arbitrary greatness, but the greatness in our ability to produce and not just consume, to be inventive, to look at the universe and find a philosophy and follow it. And there's just, that's something that's really dying out in our culture. I mean, it's like superhero movies is like the only place where you get anything like a positive vision of, of humanity. And there it's like done through magic powers, um, you know, except maybe, maybe Batman, but, 
um, you know, I think it's, it's really, really important to have, um, you know, to have these, this, this vision of like what we are in, in order to motivate what we do. Um, you know, I'd say that the kind of the biggest area of, of disagreement I have is the idea that you can kind of come up with like a, a clear, like a legal system or a moral system can be completely derived from, um, you know, observing the axioms of the universe. So I, I come at uh, this systemic reform much more from an engineering perspective where I view institutions as things that you tinker with and that have kind of multiple conflicting goals. Um, you know, there's, there's a sense in which, you know, I feel like uh, it's like, you can say, I want a car that gets a thousand miles to the gallon, goes zero to 60 uh, in one second and like can smash a new brick wall and no one gets hurt. And like, you can just say that and you can justify whether, why those are good things, but there is no way to turn that recipe into a functioning car with those specs. You're, you're specifying an output. And I think in the philosophy of government, people think that they're specifying governmental system when all they're doing is specifying an output of what rights they'd like that, that system to protect. Um, and you know, something that my, my dad, he's written a book on the economic analysis of law. We have this, this whole field, you know, Nobel prize winning uh, field, which says, hey, what laws will actually maximize total benefit to people? How can we analyze a law and see you know, whether it's good or not? And it brings up these really interesting challenges. You know, my dad's tried to get an answer for, for, for a long time to this, you know, this fundamental question is like, if somebody harms you, how much compensation are you entitled to? Do they have to just make you whole? Well, if that's the case, say they're stealing from you, um, it's kind of like, well, they get caught, they break even. They don't get caught, they make money. So like, if you only set the punishment exactly equal to the harm, like it doesn't quite work out. You're letting people get a free ride, but like, what is the philosophical justification for it being a different, should it be two times, three times, 7.1 times? Like there's not a good philosophical answer. Whereas if in the structure of economic analysis of law, we do have an answer. It's like, what is the percent chance of catching them? If you got a 10% chance of catching them, you should charge them exactly 10 times the damage because um, you know, that kind of charges them their expected value. And so there's a whole line of, line of reasoning where you can actually try to answer these questions um, that you, know, you just, unfortunately you can't get from kind of looking at reality through a pure philosophic lens. So, you know, that kind of idea that we don't, you know, you can write down your rights, you can write down your axioms and your beliefs, but that does not translate to a governing system, which actually accomplishes that philosophy. And we don't really have a, you know, a, a way of doing that. Um, that's, I'd say that's kind of my biggest area of disagreement. So uh, you had mentioned Google and its, its grand vision of organizing the world's information um, perhaps as we might expect from somebody who spent 10 years in software engineering at Google, you propose uh, some tech metaphors to think about reinventing government, including uh, treat law as code and government as an industry. Um, I'd love to get your thinking on what, what exactly that means. I'm definitely not a software engineer, but also, um, you know, Google has been, you know, in the news or some controversy uh, within libertarianism um, in terms of distrust of, a, of an entity having so much information and access to, to personal data. Uh, would love to, to get your uh, kind of overview of how 
you as the son of a uh, one of the most famous um, economists, David Friedman, and of course, um, grandson of, of Milton and Rose. How did you end up at Google? And uh, what have you learned along the way? Well, you know, it's one of these things where I kind of resisted the family business for, for a long time. And I was like, no, I want to do something different, something not related to economics. And, uh, you know, so I got uh, math, computer science degrees and, and went off to Google. And of course, after, within a couple of years, I ended up working for Google's uh, chief economist, Hal Varian, and kind of, you know, researching ad auctions there. But yeah, I would say that my, my viewpoint about kind of law and legal systems is very much informed by software engineering and, and that it's like, I guess I want to make the case that it's not just an arbitrary association, that there is this like fundamental way in which laws are code in the sense that what is a law? It's this process or algorithm for making decisions. And, you know, it's a type of infrastructure for our society, which unlike roads and electric, you know, um, is virtual. Like you can't just, you know, snap your finger and change the street layout of a city, but you can in theory snap your finger and change what laws apply to what parts of the city. And so there's this fundamental way in which law is this kind of virtual set of rules and that we could be treating it in this much more flexible way like we do in software. So at Google, you know, we were constantly kind of rewriting all of the software every few years. And there's these ways that you could have, you know, test sets of laws. So you know, Utah just became the first state in the US to announce a regulatory sandbox where any startup can apply for an exception to any laws in the state and show what the business purpose is, why it would benefit the state, why it helps their business, why it will be safe to get out of these regulations. And then the government can just approve the business um, to, to not have those regulations for, for a one year renewable term. And so you can imagine something like Uber, which started by kind of skirting regulations and trying to grow fast enough to not get caught could have actually formally applied to the state. So there are all these concepts of test software, of modularity, of separating out the legal code into different parts and kind of having clean interfaces between them. Um, version control, like you should be able to go onto GitHub and see like, the changes to the law that were made in each amendment using all of the tools we have for tracking software changes. You should be able to like click on places in a law that refer to another law and like, and go to it. And, and we should be able to kind of come up with new sets of laws and apply them in limited areas as with a charter city, because, you know, at Google, we didn't like, I didn't like rewrite part of the web server and then deploy that to, you know, a billion users all at once. You write it, you test it. Maybe when it's really solid, you make it so that one person in a million gets your server. Um, and then you make it so one person in a thousand gets it and then one person in a hundred and you make sure that it scales up. And we could be doing that kind of thing with our laws. We talk about uh, treating government as an industry and also about encouraging governments to compete for, for capital, human capital, financial capital. Uh, and historically, one big driver of that, as you know, has been tax policy. Uh, and we're gonna be uh, having some big changes in tax policy that we're gonna be learning about today and in the days uh, ahead. And uh, also recently, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen proposed uh, an end to tax competition uh, that she would like to see world governments 
come together and, uh, and fix rates. Uh, of course, she wants to do this because uh, she and the administration want to raise our corporate tax rate and um, know that that is going to actually take us from being in a, a very competitive position where it has been for the past four years to being quite a bit less competitive and worries that there are going to be um, companies that are going to make changes uh, based on these incentives. Uh, so leaving aside the issue uh, that when private companies fix prices to stifle competition, uh, that would be illegal. Uh, what, what are the implications of a global cartel to, to fix corporate tax rates? And, and I mean, would, would things like charter, charter cities or seasteading communities, would it, uh, would it be able to withstand that? I mean, it's terrible because like, it's exactly the opposite of kind of what I'm promoting, which is competition between jurisdictions. And, you know, I have this viewpoint of government as an industry where, you know, it's not that I want to kind of dismiss the philosophic aspects of government. Those are one really important component to analyzing it. Um, but it's also important from a practical standpoint to just understand, okay, this is this sector of the economy that we, you know, choose a provider by living in a country that we pay these taxes for and we get services. And there's a way in which it can kind of remove a lot of like the heat and anger and the sense that like, this is something that like they're doing fundamentally wrong things, which like, I agree, but is kind of like psychologically, it's really hard. It's really hard to like, really feel how wrong kind of the way our governments operate are. And it can actually be a relief to just think of yourself as a consumer and say, all right, I want to like choose the country that kind of gives me the best value for the money. And that's what I can do as a consumer is I can choose between the businesses um, and, you know, kind of converting a whole society to a different philosophy is, you know, it's probably not going to happen. And, and, and in this model, like the, the taxes are the price you're paying and then you're getting these governance services that includes dispute resolution and protection and all of these things. And if you can't compete on price, that just makes the whole industry function worse. It is moving the industry in exactly the opposite direction of, of, of more competition. And, you know, just as you said, it's, it's a cartel and not just, we're not just trying to use a word like that refers to a, like one bad thing to refer to another in an arbitrary way. It's literally, they are fixing the price of a good and saying that like every provider of this good has to charge the same price. And that's just terrible for consumers. I mean, we, we need to have, different governments that are offering different packages that some that charge more and some that charge less and some that uh, offer more services and some that offer less. And that's what a, a healthy industry looks like because if there's choice, if we're really getting to choose kind of different price points for government services, you know, then there's a sense in which it's, it's kind of closer to, to fair or reasonable. And when you fix all of those prices to be the same, you distort incentives and mess up the market, just like when you fix prices in any other industry, except this is the largest industry in the world, arguably the most important to our well-being. And so it's, it's absolutely terrible. Yes, and uh, that the industry of government, um, when there is recourse of a competition and alternatives, uh, there, there is, is no choice. I mean, at least in a market, there, there, there are consequences and, and there, there are alternatives. Um, 
So before you started Pronomos, you uh, started the Seasteading Institute, and um, perhaps uh, you know since Pronomos is, is newer, you're you're still relatively best known as as the leader and the pioneer of uh, the Seasteading movement. And this is a wonderful book I mentioned that uh, that he and, and Joe Quirk came out with. It's also available on. Um, Unaudible. So um, it's really a very unusual book because it uh, it's a bit of the the journey that that the Seasteading Institute experienced. Um, it's a bit of a history lesson. It's a bit of an economics lesson, um, but it's also a bit of an environmental uh, exploration. It talks about ways in which that uh, people. Uh, and these communities could uh, derive energy, derive food, and could also solve a lot of um, environmental challenges. So um, how did you get interested in, in seasteading? And um, what, what, have you, what have you learned? Because I know there were a lot of predictions in here um, that were kind of lining up to, well, we should be just about now in the next few years starting to see the first seasteading, you know, signing up for our, our place on one of these uh, floating islands. But um, what, where are we in, in the seasteading journey? Yeah, so, you know, for, for me, 20 years ago, coming up with this framework of we need uh, government startups, we need to improve the industry and make it more competitive, you know, and it, at, at that time, there was just no possibility of working with countries. In fact, there was a, a project called Lazy Fair City that uh, got together, I think, a million dollars in commitments and took out a full page ad in The Economist to try to make a city based on objectivism. And they got just, you know, crickets, no answers. And so there kind of, there wasn't a way to do it on land. And so I looked to the ocean and kind of had this idea that, okay, it might be really hard to invent new ocean technology, but it, it's actually probably easier than reforming our political systems. And if we can solve these technical problems, and we can open up this this new frontier. Um, and you know, we've we've done a lot of interesting work over the years. Uh, for a period, we had a partnership with uh, French Polynesia, and then um, in in 2019, we had something kind of you know very scary and exciting happen, which was that this company called uh, Ocean Builders, which was working on um, on some kind of seastead designs for what we call a single family seastead, something that you know you could just buy and live on and go float in the ocean. And they were testing out this engineering design off, off Thailand where they lived. Um, and you know, they, they just viewed it as, as kind of testing this, this structure right in the ocean, but they had in, in past interviews talked about autonomy and wanting to start new countries, et cetera. And when the Thai government found out, they freaked out so that this was a threat to their sovereignty, um, declared Chad and Nadia um, charged them with treason, which in Thailand is a capital crime, and started trying to hunt them down. Uh, and so, you know, I guess from the perspective that uh, when you get into philosophy, uh, you're getting into something really serious, and you may start out discussing it, you know, with your friends over a drink, but you're trying to change the existing uh, the existing powers of the world, like there's going to be pushback. So Chad and Nadia like went into hiding. They kind of like got they they saw that the the uh, you know they saw like a spy plane and kind of realized that the government was after them. Went into hiding, made a daring escape, and eventually made their way to to Panama. So you know the story kind of has a happy ending, and now they're hard at work 
um, building the next generation of, of Seasteads, these Seapods. So uh, you can kind of today, you can you know, pre-order uh, a Seapod and go out and, and, and do your Seasteading. Uh, the other big thing that's happening, the movement is working with, uh, with flag registries to make a custom seasteading flag. So uh, there's this sense, there's the sense in which admiralty law, which is that every ship has to register with the country. And it's like you're a franchise of that country. You franchise their sovereignty. So if you're out past 12 nautical miles, you have to comply with kind of global environmental policies, but you're basically like a floating embassy of whatever country you register with. And the cool thing is, this is actually a competitive system. It's like countries are competing to offer their sovereignty to these mobile vessels that that can then change their mind about who their sovereignty provider is. So it's this incredible place in international law, which is actually kind of like the dream of like utopia of utopias. Uh, and so we're kind of like working with a number of countries to see about creating a custom flag for seasteaders where when you register, there's art, there's a ton of like de facto autonomy that ships get because it's just impractical to police them, but really laying out like, okay, in what ways can this vessel kind of have its own laws and be autonomous and self-determining. So those are kind of the big things that are happening, the, the sea pods and flagging work. And then of course there is ephemeral, which is uh, something I've never been to, but plan to attend. Um, it is a kind of a floating festival that, that you started and people who have been going for a while uh, liken it to a, a kind of a burning man, but, but on the water. Tell us a little bit more about that and, um, and how has it evolved? It's, it's one of my favorite aspects of the book was your stories of how it came together and broke apart and came to get reconstituted again. Yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's, there's kind of like one way in which ephemeral has worked very well and one where it's worked very, very poorly. So the idea of ephemeral actually had, uh, before I wrote the first seasteading book and it was, I started getting into this stuff and I was like, wow, it's gonna be really, really hard to start a new society on the ocean. Maybe the thing to do is to start it one week a year, right? And like, I think people will be willing to go live under a new set of laws for a week much more readily than they would, you know, move themselves and their families. And so it was, the idea was to kind of test out new institutions and legal systems, um, you know, by doing a, a floating festival in international waters. Now, it turns out that even for a week, uh, gathering international waters is really hard. Uh, we haven't done it yet, although I hope to in the next few years. And what we did was we started out gathering in the Sacramento Delta, which is kind of an area uh, near the California Bay Area, um, which has houseboats for rent and is kind of like well-suited for doing something like this. So we did this, this floating festival, uh, sort of Burning Man in the Water, where you build platforms and you rent boats and you bring them together and they tie them up and you hang out and, and party for a week. Um, and, you know, my hope was that we would kind of start out in the Delta and after a few years, we'd move to the Bay and after a few years, we moved to the coast and then offshore. And that kind of never happened. It's just a lot harder and there's a lot of inertia. And so that's something, you know, that I hope to address in the next few years by putting together an, an international waters ephemerile uh, in, in one of these like reefs where you can kind of go and get shelter, but there's nothing above the water. So it's in international waters. But the thing that, that really has worked is this, this idea of competitive governance where there's dozens of islands at Ephemeral and some are really big, you know, 30, 40 boats. Some are just one person's boat and they all have different rules. You've got islands where there's no media allowed. 
You've got islands where you have to have a life vest and a whistle on at all times. Um, you know, they've each got their different set of rules and, uh, you know, you're kind of like when you go to an island, you, you need to follow their rules and anybody can, you know, there's no central authority. Um, you know, it's just like, this is a public waterway and you can go there. So if you want to go there and form an island around any idea, you can. And it's just been fascinating to see kind of the culture evolve and like one island does, you know, has one set of rules and then another island has another. I mean, you know, I went out there a few years ago with like a Japanese documentary team and most of the islands were like, we just don't want any media at all. And so, you know, this team, they just like found a local who had a boat and a little like floating platform and they just made their own island. And they just invited people who wanted to be part of the documentary to come visit their island, you know, so that they weren't imposing on anyone else. And there's just all kinds of stories like that. So that, you know, competing, um, yeah, competing kind of platform uh, designs and rules is a reality there and that's fun. So it's sort of a, a festival of self-government. So are you having it this summer and uh, how do people learn about it? How do people sign up? Yeah, there's a, just find, find the ephemeral.org website or join the Facebook group. Uh, they actually, they did it last year was very controversial. Obviously, like most people didn't go. And of course there were fights about whether like you should even be allowed to, or is it like evil to choose to get together, you know, which is somewhat ridiculous. Fortunately, there is, you know, there was no, no way for those who objected to like stop it. And people on their own recognizance were able to choose to have this gathering. Um, but, you know, the U.S. is getting rapidly vaccinated and I expect there will be a kind of a normal ephemeral this summer. So it's, it's, it's every summer, generally June or July, um, you know, near the California Bay Area. So just you know, join one of the groups and, and come on down. It's, uh, you gotta fight, you gotta have, have to have something that floats. Um, so, you know, you'll need to rent a boat or bring a boat or build a platform, um, but anyone's welcome. That's, that's fun. Well, speaking of things that float, we have a question here uh, from Linda Abrams, um, supporter of the Atlas Society. Great to see you here, Linda. She asks if you would comment on uh, the cruise ships, and I think you did refer to this a bit in your book, uh, that are structured for full-time residents. Um, IIRC, mm -hmm. one of them is called The World, yep. based in Florida, but she believes there are more. Is that, mm -hmm. would that be considered a small scale version of seasteading? Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I think that, uh, that this is, this like ship setting route is very, very promising right now. Um, since the global financial crisis, the last 10 years, ships have been selling for scrap prices. There's a ton of them. I think it's like the most viable seasteading approach right now. Um, that said, it kind of historically, from a financial perspective, it hasn't worked out that well. So there's basically one of these, and there have been a bunch of ideas for other ones, but the world is the only one, and they lost a lot of money for their investors. Um, they were not able to sell most of the units. Eventually, the residents kind of bought it back from the bank uh, at a large loss from the investors, but you know, it works. It's operating. You know, they, they did it, but not in, in a financially viable way that you could scale up. Uh, one thing that's really interesting is, is how high their operational costs are. So if you imagine for, for a house, you might pay a few percent a year in, in kind of maintenance. So you've got your capital costs, your operational cost. For, for the world, like their lower end units was like a $1.5 million apartment and 250K a year, um, because that's what it costs to like keep the ship moving. And, you know, I dug into this a little bit 
And, you know, part of the reason why it's so much more expensive than, you know, a carnival cruise is that a carnival cruise is going on this fixed loop, going to the same ports, they have all their logistics, they've got their warehouses, their resupply, it's very simple. The world doesn't visit the same port for two years again. And so the problem of kind of resupplying it is, is, is really hard. So I do think there's room for um, making full-time living ships uh, that travel fixed routes. And you know, from a legal perspective, what matters is that your journey has to be between two different countries. You can't just go out and back from the same country. Um, but you know, I think it's viable. I've worked on some companies trying to do uh, medical tourism on cruise ships because you could bring all of the advantages of lower cost medical procedures to picking people up on land. And, you know, obviously you, you don't do the procedures until you're in international waters. So there's kind of, there's no issues of like being in two different legal systems. And like, you know, if you try to make a residential cruise ship where drugs were legal, like you couldn't go to, to that 12 mile limit, uh, it wouldn't work. Whereas if, if what you're doing is like medical procedures with, you know, doctors from the third world from accredited medical schools who work much cheaper, um, it's, it's completely legal. So I think there's something that could be done there. Now is a really great time for it because ships are selling really cheaply, but uh, it hasn't really been done successfully. These the ocean builder guys uh, tried to do it recently. They they got this uh, the MS Satoshi like an 800 cabin cruise ship, um, but they were not able to get it uh, insured and and classified, um, and, and so they had to, uh, to to sell it. But it's a good route. Yeah, you, you mentioned also in the book, there's an example of um, countries where abortion uh, is illegal and that there was a, a medical ship of, of a sort, if you will, that was going and would be able to pick women up and then um, take them into international waters for the procedure. So I thought that was also a really interesting um, example. Yeah, Women on Waves, it's, it was a Dutch group. And now yeah, it, it was an inspiration because here, right, I have this crazy idea that you can use the legal status of the ocean in order to kind of do this kind of innovation. And like, here was people who actually did it. And there's very few of those. Yeah, no, that, was, uh, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, we have another question from Vicky who asks, uh, she's curious about, your relationship with your your grandparents and wondering if you were close to them and if uh, you have any particular memories of, of them in terms of formative memories and uh, the, the path that you followed in your professional career that you might be willing to share. Hmm. Well, let's see. I mean, I got to, to see them quite a bit on holidays growing up. Um, you know, both at their at their place in San Francisco and and up at Sea Ranch, uh, and you know, I think mostly at our, what I remember is is the debates, the kind of constant, you know, endless debates about everything, um, and debates which kind of combine this like incredibly fierce, like brutal battle in the arena attack on any ideas and arguments that people were making, yet not taking anything personally and not having any of that kind of like brutal fighting and ripping apart ideas. Um, like none of that was then projected onto the, the people. You could, you could say anything, you could you know, make any point. And if it was illogical, it would get ripped to shreds, but everyone was just like having fun and having a good time doing it. And, you know, I don't know, there may be ways in which that makes me a pain in the ass in, uh, in certain settings, but it's something that uh, has really inspired me and that I kind of like look for in my friends 
is that, you know, let's just go no holds barred on trying to understand reality and shred any bad arguments, you know, while also not taking anything personally. I think we could use a lot more of that in this world where people are suddenly taking a lot more things personally and trying to greatly reduce the space of things that we can talk about. I think that's, you know, that's terrible. And that's the opposite of the direction we should be going. Uh, yeah, and with everything, absolutely everything being politicized as, as well is uh, having a really chilling effect on, on civil society. Um, here's a question about what Ayn Rand would have thought about lockdowns and the pandemic. Um, I guess I might ask what kind of perspective your, uh, your, your dad has and, and your, your grandparents might have had in terms of, um, you know, we, our senior scholar, Richard Salzman, uh, recently wrote an article in which he said, follow the science in every field. You know, we are frequently exhorted to follow uh, what we are told is the, the science in terms of epidemiology or uh, infectious diseases. But um, he was remarking that there, uh, there is political science, you know, there's economic science, there are other uh, bodies of knowledge that we know to be true and that we've kind of focused just on one, not just one aspect, which is, um, you know, health and uh, avoiding disease and infection, but avoiding one particular infection to, to the exclusion of what other, other uh, health detriments that we may be aggravating. So, um, yeah, perhaps perspective on the pandemic from your, your unique perch. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Rand would probably see it as part of this devolution of society and the government grabbing power in the totalitarian way. And, and you know, I, I hope that that's wrong, but it could well be right. Um, I, I think that my, my grandfather would you know, he had this great line, nothing is as permanent as a temporary government program. And I mm -hmm. think he'd, he'd probably share that, that concern that, you know, when you do something once for an emergency and it's, it's done by the government, uh, it, it tends to stick around. And you see this kind of ratchet effect where um, like freedoms are taken away, new government programs and spending are added, um, you know, but then there's no, they're never released. And that's, you know, part of this, these ideas of startup countries and competitive governance is that in the corporate sector, you know, a corporation can go bankrupt and have its assets and employees redistributed to other productive enterprises. And we don't, you know, in government, the only way to do this is, is a revolution. And that's, you know, maybe a cure that's often worse than the, than the disease. And so we really need kind of peaceful ways of, um, you know, of, of, of reforming and reallocating you know, our, our laws. Um, you know, I think my, my dad is very pragmatic on this and he would just say that, you know, the evidence is that the lockdowns didn't work and that he, you know, he might support them as like, you know, a, as an okay public health measure, like if they worked, but they clearly didn't. And so basically, you know, we kind of put all these small businesses out of business and ruined people's lives for nothing. Well, uh, what are some of the, the any, anything, you know, a lot of bad, a lot of bad has come out of the past year of, uh, of these lockdowns and uh, the, the economic destruction, the social destruction, um, the effect on families, the effect on children. 
But, you know, at the Atlas Society, we, we elevate benevolence, we elevate gratitude, we, we elevate optimism. Uh, and we do that very selfishly uh, because we believe we need to find ways to kind of fortify our sense of, of agency in order to, to move forward with, with purpose and, and, and energy. So uh, what are some of, and, and as you said, there was the positive aspect of people being more open to, uh, to looking at uh, yeah. looking a little bit more skeptically at, um, at government and a little bit more charitably towards competition for government services. So whether yeah. on a personal level, professional level, or social level, what are some of the, the positives that you take from this past year? Well, I mean, I, I, I love that attitude and kind of gratitude and positivity. They, they work. They work for the individual and, and you know, and, and that's what matters. Um, for for me, I think kind of the the big unexpected positive is this like what what COVID has done for remote work and people's sense of location independence. You know, again, I I didn't twenty years ago. I wasn't like, oh, we need to like specifically build charter cities. It was more like we need startup countries. We need more competition between governments. We need people to be able to switch countries more easily in order to make the whole industry work better. And what's happening with COVID and remote work is that there are all of these people who are like, okay, I, I don't have to work physically anymore. So I'm now like much more free to move than I ever have been before. And what we're seeing is this huge rise in competition between different US cities and states, um, you know, as well as between different countries for citizens. But there's been this, you know, giant swell of people fleeing, you know, high tax, poor quality states like California and New York um, and going to places that are well run. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm generally not that optimistic about the medium term future of the United States. It's, it's too big. It's poorly run. It's kind of like slowly decaying. The culture is not great anymore. Uh, but this is one of the factors that really gives me hope is that federalism and a return to competition between different regions, you know, means that people can live someplace that's actually well run. And the more people do that, the more pressure it puts on the failing states and the more likely they are to kind of do the radical reform that they need. And, you know, so I think that this kind of mobility of people and the way cities are competing, uh, you know, it's really promising. Well, um, Patrick, thank you again. You are uh, quite the trooper um, to agree to this, this interview and, uh, to do it on the day after you had this big operation. We're very, very grateful. Anything that I didn't get to that you wanted to comment on or? Um, no, uh, thanks so much for having me and, and check out our various social media feeds. And it's, you know, it's a very active movement and I'm, you know, really interested uh, not, not just in these Kind of topics of, of competing governments and upgrading institutions, but in you know how how we can spread positive images of individuals and virtue, and how can we combine the ancient virtues with what's needed in the modern age, um, and how can we kind of all be wonderful, happy people and work together for a better future. Well, um, I agree, and that is what we try to do and uh, to, to dramatize and make accessible to inspire young people uh, through our graphic novels, through our animated videos, uh, through the many programs that we have for young people at the Atlas Society. 
So, um, and, and these webinars that we have, we now have done 50 uh, throughout the past year of lockdowns and everything else. And that is a positive thing because at the first, at the first episode, uh, we we're like, okay, now Zoom and this is, click this and then click that. And now, hey, we're all, we're all champs. We know, we know what to do. So, um, so I want to thank you, Patry. I hope I, if I don't see you at Ephemeral, maybe I will see you up in Northern California. Definitely hope I will see you on November 4th in Malibu uh, when we are going to be honoring uh, Peter Thiel with the Lifetime Achievement Award and uh, encourage all of you watching to go, go to the Atlas Society website and, uh, and get, your, get your ticket. And so, Patry, we follow you um, where on social media? By Twitter is best. So at Patricimo and at Pronomos VC. Wonderful. I, and I want to, again, encourage all of you to, uh, to check out this, this book, Sea Setting by Joe Corp, and its audible version. Um, I have now read it twice, and I'm sure that's not going to be my last. So appreciate you, Patry, and all that you've done and all that you will do, and uh, hope to, uh, to see you on the road to a more free and vibrant future. Sounds great. Yeah, looking forward to Malibu. Bye.